So, um, a, a wonderful topic. I think the problem I'm going to have, and our speakers are going to have, we've set them an impossible task of speaking for 10, maybe 12 minutes, but no more, um, so that we can allow a lot of um, time for questions. And then we will absolutely promise we finish before one, so that you can get off either to the lunch or, or um, uh, your other destinations in this wonderful alumni weekend. So, uh, without more ado, the, the speakers are going to speak in the, a chronological order, starting with Dickens and moving through the 19th century up to the contemporary. But I hope in the questions that people will sort of move across the centuries, because there's a lot to learn, I think. And of course, we're choosing Dickens as a starting point for Bicentenary this year. So, without more ado, I will uh, hand over to him. Thank you very warmly for having me here today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Jacqueline, for our session. Right, now, when you line up a literary critic, an economic historian, an expert in modern social action, and an economist, a global economist, it is rather worth asking what you think the literary critic can provide. It's not going to be a new theory of capitalism at the stage we are in, and it's not going to be a new history of the 19th century or the 20th, for that matter. So, uh, and it's not going to be new policy directors for now. Comparisons of now and then have nevertheless been extremely popular in this bicentenary year of Dickens. One of my colleagues, Robert Douglas Fairhurst, who published a biography of, uh, of Dickens, Becoming Dickens, earlier this year, has been in constant call, um, not least by the New York Times, uh, for pieces in which he's asked to produce structural comparisons of Melmott and the latest perfidious banker. Um, I've rather resisted doing this um, today, not least because it might be... Um, inappropriate to mention Kweku, Edaboli, in too much detail today. Uh, they don't work, they are clearly structurally specious. Um, so I'm more interested in trying to figure out what it is that we think we're trying to produce when we make those comparisons now, what it is that seems to be perhaps missing in our culture um, that there was possible for Dickens to do. Now, most of them, it seems to me, most of the people asking for such comparisons are hoping for a reminder if it's even an accurate reminder of what the 19th century novel was able to do for its culture, and that is the, the possibility of speaking a general outrage, some kind of moral indignation, at cases of, for example, gross inequality of rich and poor, or abuses of power, institutional abuses. And the hope seems to be that we could muster something that would have the equivalent force of what Trollope claims he called Mr. Popular Sentiment in full cry against the latest abuse. That is, of course, extremely difficult for us to do now, and I'll come back to you at the very end of some suggestions of where we might find it, but I should say at the beginning that I think it is extremely difficult to do that possibility of, of a, a, a cultural voice speaking on behalf of all our moral outrages, or I suppose moral outrages, um, is, is one of the things that we have lost, and one of the drivers, if you like, for remembering Dickens. All I think had Dickens right. He doesn't, he said, do the proletariat. He doesn't, one can add um, to, or will really do the wealthy either. What he does is that middle branch of society, um, what, what all were called the, the bureaucratic um, tradesmen middle. Um, uh, in their aspiration to be upwardly mobile and their um, deep, deep fear of being dragged down as Dickens himself was, um, one of the complaints that um, Orwell makes, and the core complaint running through the whole, is that Dickens has no systemic analysis of the problems of his day. What he does is only a moral outcry against abuses that he spots, and it figures always on the figure of the sensitive, intelligent person in danger of being left behind by, um, by, um, by an abusive situation or by bad luck. 
Um, mostly, but not always, that person is a child. One of the things that changes, as Dickens writes later in his career, is that he starts to take the outcome of the child so treated, so Arthur Clennon and the Little Dorrit, rather than Oliver Twist or David Copperfield, the child who nearly loses that chance. And it is, I think, a fair complaint against Dickens that when those children are rescued, they're the common romance outcome of the earlier novels and some of the middle novels. There is no question in Dickens about the ones that are left behind. What about the other little boys that are left, you know, sticking labels on packing pots in the, in the warehouse and being subject to the eye of the public, um, you know, either tender or patronising or mocking as it might be? Um, we can't, I think, rescue him from that. But there are very interesting questions, I think, about the conundrum that was Dickens' own relationship to class. You will all know, I'm sure, it's part of popular knowledge still. Um, Dickens, the little boy, seeing Gad's Hill, the beautiful house in Rochester, and determining, thank his father, that he will live there one day and own it. The child dragged down into poverty, who then, by his own efforts, but with a bit of help from above, you know, the well-placed patronage, makes it to becoming much the wealthiest novelist of his day, who was raking in money in those last years when he's speaking to huge audiences um, of public readings in Britain and America, who does indeed um, end up living in Gad's Hill. The one line that has always fascinated me in Dickens's will when he's distributing the outcome of all this wealth is the additional line, I've only ever seen it quoted in Peter Ackroyd's biography of Dickens. Dickens left instructions that when he died, his horses should be shot. It's the gesture of an old-style gentleman, exactly the kind of thing that Dickens thought he was writing against. You know, the reactionary modes of living of the old, you know, the Miss Havisham class, if you like. Uh, not Miss Havisham, my father's a brewer, but you know, the, the old sort of gentry um, and, and, and aristocracy. So he has a very peculiar personal relationship to it. It's not necessarily where we need to go to figure out best what's happening in the novels, of course. So let's start with what, um, and I'll watch my um, clock very carefully, I promise Sally. Let's start with what Dickens was writing against, because if you think about what the novel can contribute, clearly it can contribute uh, compelling imaginative realisations or representations of what is happening in the sphere of wealth and poverty. But it also has its own history to deal with, and the immediate history of the novel when Dickens starts writing is cluttered, and as he saw it debased, um, by the popularity of this genre, variously known as fashionable novels, silver fork novels, dandy novels. He, Thackeray, the Brontes, most of the figures who've remained in our cultural canon, however much it's been revised over recent years, were all in different ways writing at the start against the popularity of this specious kind of love of a world that was never going to be open to most of their readers and that wasn't frankly very attractive if you thought about it for a minute. So this is poor Kate Nickleby, who's recently had to lose her job as a seamstress because she's too pretty and attracted attention she didn't want to attract. Um, and now, going a little lower still, to work as a companion to Mrs. Wittitaly of Cadogan Place off Sloane Square, which Dickens describes as being full of people who are trying as best they can to adopt the airs and resemblances of people of a loftier rank. Poor Kate has been obliged to read, this is the first piece on your sheet, a very bad three-volume novel, to Mrs. Wittitaly in her lolled on her long sofa, three volumes of this stuff. Unless you think this is overblown parody, <coughs> it is worth sometimes looking at the work of, say, um, Catherine Gore, Lady Bessington, some of the early Bulwer Lytton, um, and indeed Disraeli, because it's not so far off the original. Cherie's yet, said the Lady Flabella, inserting her mouse like feet in the blue satin slippers, which had unwittingly occasioned the half playful, half angry altercation between herself and the youthful Colonel Befilaire in the Duke of Masfigny's Salon de Danse on the previous night. Cherisette, ma chère, donnez-moi de l'eau de cologne, s'il vous plaît, mon enfant. Merci, thank you, said the Lady Flabella, 
At this instant, while the Lady Flabella yet inhaled that delicious fragrance by holding the mouchoir in her exquisite but thoughtfully chiseled nose, the door of the boudoir, artfully concealed by rich hangings of silk and damask, the hue of Italy's firmament, was thrown open, and with noiseless tread, two valets de chambre, clad in sumptuous <gasps> liveries of peach blossom and gold, advanced into the room, followed by a page in bud well silk stockings, who, while they remained at some distance, making the most graceful obeisances, advanced to the feet of his lovely mistress, and dropping on one knee, presented on a golden salve a gorgeously chased ascended billet. Right. Um, one could give it easily to first-year students to, to teach them the powers of um, satire as a vehicle for seeing what's going on in the original. One of the things I love about it is the, the, the trend in, um, the, the picking up of the trend in 1820s to 40s fashionable novels of hectic capitalization. So what should be picked up, of course, is the word of emotional intensity, but it runs completely free of logic, so a word like envelope is suddenly capitalized to no purpose whatsoever. The French is... Is, is both supposed to be the gesture of borrowed elegance, but completely redundant since it's immediately translated. Um, he loved this kind of thing. A lot of the energy of, of Dickens's engagement with wealth and poverty is about the satirizing of the rich end. The bottom, of course, is about something else. Now, I want to take um, as a more serious engagement with the question of poverty. The person, the character, that Orwell said that he doesn't feel this in at all, he thought was the one exception to Dickens's failure to engage in any detail with the reality of poverty. So what he thought Dickens did, and as I said, I think he's very largely right, is to pick out the exceptional person, the person of exceptional potential who needs to be rescued from the system. But in Little Dorrit, that novel where, if you remember, the, the main protagonist is not the child, but the man whose childhood was, was such a tragedy of a childhood, a travesty of a childhood, locked in with the, um, the abusive mother, the unloving poem, the Sundays when no play was allowed, um, and who is still kind of emotionally rootless and emotionally impoverished in the world. So long afterwards, that's Arthur Clennam, the hero, if he is a hero. Arthur Clennam is going to the Marshall Sea, and he's in company of Mr. Plornish, a plasterer who lives in Bleeding Heart Yard. And Mr. Plornish is trying to give you something like a reflection on what the nature of poverty is today. So it's, it's, it's almost the only instance I can think of in Dickens when he tries to give you a meditation on what it means to be poor from inside the poor person's head. It's written in a kind of, it's a half-borrowing voice of Mr. Plornish, but it's not in direct quotation, so I won't do, you'll be glad to know by New Zealand, um, the rendition of Dickens' Cockney or whatever it should be. Um, because I take it that what he's asking you to do is to stand back that fraction from what could so easily be sentimental comedy and would have been in earlier Dickens. Okay, this is Mr. Plornish. When a man felt on his own back and in his own belly that poor he was, that man, Mr. Plornish, gave it as his decided belief, knowed well that he was poor somehow or another, and you couldn't talk it out of him, no more than you could talk beef into him. Then you see some people, as was better offset, and a good many such people lived pretty close up to the mark themselves, if not beyond it, so he'd heard, that they was improvident. That was the favourite word, going down the yard. For instance, if they see a man with his wife and children going to Hampton Court in a wan perhaps once in a year, um, they says, hello, I thought you was poor, my improvident friend. Why, Lord, how hard it was upon a man. What was a man to do? I'm not going to read it all. You can read it in your own time. But if you take it down the bottom, as to who was to blame for it, Mr. Plornish didn't know who was to blame for it. He could tell you who suffered, but he couldn't tell you whose fault it was. It wasn't his place to find out. And who'd mind what he said if he did find out? 
One of the trademarks of Late Dickens, in addition to a constant harping upon the resonances, the emotional and the potential political resonances of the word poor, if you run, it's easy to find e-texts of Dickens on, um, on Google now. Project Gottenberg has done almost every 19th century novel you could want to read. Just run the word poor with it. It's, it's, it's way beyond the point where the counter works. It's in the hundreds of harping on this word. So poor means emotionally deprived, means without money means an appeal for sympathy, also means um, a, a gesture of, um, of disparagement. It's, he loves running the kind of emotional triggers on that. But the other hallmark of this prose is a kind of searching around for agency. He loves that trope in which nobody's fault, um, you know, no one's fault, nobody can be found. But the alternative here is searching around between third person, second person, the occasional borrowing of first person. What kind of relationship of your own agency to the poor and to one's own poverty might make something change. The gesture of Little Dorrit is, in the end, to throw one's hands in the air and to embrace the immediate people around you and to do what little could you could. Another of all reasons for anger should have gone the route of socialism, as far as all is largely concerned. I'm not going to read the last passage on the sheet, but I'm going to give it to you as, as a question to, to pursue. People who don't like Dickens on poverty, and it's possible to hold both these positions on, on one's, in one's head, um, don't like it because it hits that base note of sentimentalism so hard. And if one wants to talk about money in the Victorian novel, very often the first place one starts is Paul Dombey, the little child who won't make it, looking up with his old world-weary face at his father and saying, Papa, what is money? Um, and his father in difficulties because he wants to talk about circulating media and currency and depreciation of the currency and so forth. And then says, money can do anything. Papa, why didn't money save my mama? Okay, the kind of contentlessness of that gesture as a structural analysis enrages people who don't like Dickens. But it is very nicely, I think, putting back that question I started with and I want to leave running and hope will work for this discussion. The question of what kind of, what kind of relationship to morality can the novel offer us? And what do we think that relationship to morality, if it's based in emotion, if it's based in something like popular sentiment, what is its legitimacy? What does it hope to achieve as part of a wider public conversation, to use the current idiom, about inequalities in our society. Underlying that is another question that has fascinated most recent long post all literary critics, which is what paper, the book, fiction, stories do themselves in relation to their own currency of value. They are like paper money, gestures of credit, and they can easily, like the Silver Fortin office at the beginning, lose that credit. So what might they do to keep it going? Is sentiment still workable for us, as it seems to be in America? Is sentiment something we need to leave behind? And where might we find something that could speak that kind of moral outrage and turn it into something that might be more structurally useful for us? OK, I'll pass over to Jane. Well, I'm going to give you some historical context to um, the questions that we're looking at. Um, so let's begin by being rich in historical context. And here I think the 19th century saw unprecedented economic growth. Only today's rates of economic growth um, would make um, what was achieved in the 19th century um, look poor. These are um, the most respected indices of real GDP per capita in Britain over this time period. And you see the astonishing, by historical standards, rates of economic growth achieved in Dickens's time in that 19th century period. So, un unprecedented historical growth then. 
Britain's output per person in 1700 was already above that of many very poor countries today. So this is really a, a, a significant um, historical gap. And already by the beginning of the 18th century, more than half of the British population was engaged in non-agricultural, non-primary production. So they, people were engaged in manufacturing and service production. And there was a massive and developing involvement in world trade. So by around 1870, um, Britain, for instance, exported probably 40% of world trade in manufacturers. So that the age of Dickens sees Britain emerge as the workshop of the world, and I think we can say the richest and most powerful country in the world. And most powerful is very important here because this is economic muscle and political muscle combined. But what about poverty, though, in historical perspective? Well, real wages are very slow to um, respond to that growth in output per head. Here are the most expected indices of real wages in Britain. And there you see the upward movement really has to wait until the middle of the 19th century. And we see some rather unpleasant bumping around at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, associated with um, the turbulence of the uh, Napoleonic and French wars, associated with uh, building of uh, cities and mobility, moving around um, goods and people, the new ways of, of producing, um, that were producing wealth, were also simultaneously producing poverty. So real wages are slow to reflect the growth in output per head, and I think we see this as meaning there was growing inequality in the age of Dickens. The rate of profit, for instance, doubled between the mid-18th and the mid-19th century. And poverty was fed by very many of those same changes that were creating wealth. Well, rather than talk about poverty generally, I want to zero in and talk about child poverty and growing up in care. And that's why my lead motif at the beginning here was Oliver Twist, the child who I think we can never forget when we start to talk about child poverty and growing up in care. Well, let's think about growing up in care today. There is now absolutely and utterly incontrovertible evidence that children who grow up in care have worse educational, occupational, and health outcomes than the average British child. They're more likely as adults, and even as teenagers, to um, be involved in alcohol and drug abuse, as well as self-abuse. They're more likely to become homeless. The children we see on the streets of Oxford are very likely to have grown up in care. They're more likely to become pregnant at a young age and outside any stable family structures. And they're more likely to be the, the um, victims of sexual predation. You all probably remember the recent case in Rochdale, horrific case, where nine men were arrested um, for grooming children for um, sexual exploitation attracted a great deal of attention because of the race relations implications since the um, perpetrators were Asian and the victims white. But in fact, 
One of the facts that tended to get lost in the agonising about race relations was the fact that the girls who were the victims of this circle of abusers were children who had grown up in care. So there's little Oliver. Let's think about his gaze into child poverty. The English poor law is a very interesting and, I might say, unique institution. Uh, historians have struggled with interpretations and reinterpretations. The classical economists, of course, thought that the poor law was an obstacle to economic growth, that it um, created imprudent marriages, it sapped industry, uh, it uh, meant that people weren't able to move around the country, um, and um, it should in fact be adjusted to fit with those wonderful new economic opportunities that the Industrial Revolution was introducing. And we see, in fact, a very significant break in poor law procedures between the old and the new poor law in 1834 with the introduction of the famous new poor law, a much more utilitarian and um, hard-line approach to poverty and how poverty should be treated. Right at the time that there is the furore about the transition to the new poor law, Dickens writes Oliver Twist, which um, significantly is called the Parish Boys' Progress in its first drafts. Recently, economic historians have begun to revise our views of the poor law and the transition to the new poor law, and have suggested, in fact, that this unique nascent welfare system, this is how it's now presented, that this seeds for the welfare state actually encouraged growth and structural change. It was a positive factor in Britain's economic performance in the 19th century. And in particular, it encouraged the formation of human capital. It shored up child well-being. So applied to poor law children, the argument has been that the old poor law, and indeed the transition to the new poor law, was not as harsh or uncaring as previously thought, that parish apprentices developed skills and discipline, and that in fact they were, held, they were thrown a lifeline back to independence um, and respectability. And some of my own work, along with significantly the work of Katrina Honeyman, a colleague at Leeds University, um, has made these kinds of arguments. Well, my sources are unusual sources for a number-crunching economic historian like myself, because I've been working with working-class people's own memoirs um, of um, their experiences, and in particular their memoirs of, of, child, of childhood. And I used my sources to um, construct a database of working class experience. And so one of the things I want to talk about is something Anne spoke Simons immediately started asking me questions about, which is the age at which children started work. So these are children's memories of pauperism, actual children who lived through the time of Oliver Twist. And um, out of my autobiographers, 62 recalled an interaction with the poor law. These were spread through my time period, and they mixed their accounts with some surprisingly fond memories of the workhouse, very different from those of Oliver, as recounted by Dickens. And there's often enough information in the memoirs to track subsequent history of these individuals and to ask whether their experiences were permanently damaged by their encounter with the welfare authorities or if, in fact, their life chances were even enhanced 
So what I've used here is a simple example of trying to track outcomes is the age at which children started work. 56 autobiographers who received poor relief also reported the age at which they started work. The mean age of these poor law boys can be compared with the mean age of starting work of boys who grew up in independent but working class families. And you see the differences there are the poor law boys start work age 9.51 on average, the independent boys start work age 10.89. And that's a difference that is unlikely to have occurred by chance. It's a, a statistically significant difference. It's also probably a historically significant difference. We can also compare the poor law boys with the independent poor in terms of other longer term lifetime achievements. For instance, occupational destinations, um, health outcomes. And again, we find the same result, that the poor law boys do worse than the independent poor. And these results persist even if we control, using statistical techniques, even if we control the other forces on these children's lives. So at the very least then, what we can say is the involvement of the poor law could not protect impoverished children. It could not compensate for the effects of poverty. Now of course there's a missing piece in all my stories here because the sample that I told you about relates only to boys. So the missing piece are working class girls. What happened to them? And I've currently been working on working women's memoirs to put the woman's voice back into historical perspective. I couldn't possibly come to St. Anne's College and not talk a little bit um, about women. And I've been trying to expand my female database. So really what I'm in search of are girls like this. If you know of any working class women's memoirs, please tell me about them, whether they're published or unpublished. So what do these memoirs of pauperism by girls tell us? Well, from my sample of working women's life stories, 24 girls received poor relief, and they also reported their age at starting work. And I can compare that with the sample of independent poor girls. And what we find is the same thing that the poor law girls started work younger than, in fact, the girls who grew up in independent poor families. Let me illustrate this with a girl who appears in uh, the parliamentary papers. She's an Anne Preston. She's interviewed in uh, the 1840s. She can't spell her name, but she was apprenticed out of the workhouse to Mr. Hemingway. She describes this experience and she defends her master. She says he's very good, but R.H. Hole, who's the assistant commissioner intervener, says this girl is a very ignorant girl. She can't spell her name. And a sign of her abysmal ignorance is she doesn't even know who the queen is. <laughs> Here's how Holm describes this poor girl. This is his description. That she... She's filthily black with dirt. She's deformed. Her work is dirty, but not necessarily to this extreme. Uh, he goes on. In the end, he describes her as, 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 as with her head and limbs were thrusting out of the sack of her gown, of her dress, like a tortoise. She's not looking a very positive product for the poor law sister. On the other hand, 
we have in the very same parliamentary papers a lovely bucolic example of a girl who is apprenticed to a farmhouse. Notice how long she serves, though. She actually serves 12 years. But her story is a positive one. She becomes a domestic servant after this experience, and she is, in fact, a successful domestic servant. She makes her mistress and her master happy. She marries at a prudent age of 23 from her master's house. So she, in fact, has grasped that lifeline back to respectable society. So boys and girls have similar experiences then. Poor relief is associated with poverty and poverty with youthful working. The adverse effects of growing up in poverty persist into adulthood, at least as far as rankings of occupations are concerned. The best we can say is the poor law did not completely offset the effects of poverty. And the life chances of both boys and girls who grew up in poverty were blighted. However, one significant difference emerges in comparing the life stories of boys and girls in this time period, and that is the threat of sexual predation. So this is where I'm coming back to what I began with about girls who grow up in the care system in today in Britain. My illustration here is one of my autobiographers, Lucy Locke. I could have illustrated with several, but Lucy's the one I chose. She's born in 1848. One of her first memories is being deserted, the family being deserted by her alcoholic plasterer father. Um, and she has to go into the workhouse. She goes into the workhouse at, in Tring with her mother, a disabled older sister, and uh, two little brothers, one of whom is a baby in arms. Her mother is also ailing at this point. This is a life story that is one of them written with vivid detail, written meticulously. Uh, Lucy wrote it in very old age, late at night when she couldn't sleep, as many elderly people can't. Um, and the life story is published, was eventually published by her daughter, who rescued these um, exercise books in which Lucy wrote the story. And um, is also excerpted in a very nice collection by John Burnett. So the life story appears completely in uh, the London Mercury in February of 1926. And here's a, a kind of imaginary picture of Lucy, and I presented her as a straw platter because that's the skill that she, in fact, um, acquires. And this is an excerpt from the autobiography where she describes how, age nine, she is dumped out of the poor law system back into the world of work. And this is in the 1850s by now, 1850s, so this is a new Polo story. She's um, pushed into the world of work without even the protection that a parish apprenticeship might have provided. Um, and she describes in that um, excerpt the poor living conditions found for her by the parish authorities. However, Lucy goes on, and in many places in the autobiography, she describes situations where she, and remember she's by this point 13 years old, a 13-year-old girl, is left exposed to the sexual predations of people within her community. And so here she describes how she's placed in one, uh, she's a domestic servant in a public house, and she says, well, what? That was just what the poor law thought of me. I was, after all, a drunkard's daughter. 
why shouldn't I work in a public house? And um, here she describes how the master, in fact, continuously harasses and propositions her. Lucy, and this is my final point here, Lucy escapes these adverse circumstances. She becomes, she develops skills as a straw platter, which she says provides her with a little mine of money for the rest of her life. And she gets, she becomes respectable. She marries um, and she raises a family herself. And she says they were all raised to be respectable. So she is a success story for the poor law. Like Oliver, although he's helped by some uh, typical Dickensian coincidences, uh, Lucy is not so helped. There's no cheerables to rescue her from you know, her situation. But she, by her own drive and uh, industry, escapes from her adverse poor law origins. But there are very many autobiographers, male and female, who in fact secure to um, the bad omens of their origins and the lack of care in the workhouse and poor <coughs> systems. I reread Oliver Twist as, pre as, a, as preparation for this seminar. And I want us all to remember here that although Oliver survives and um, enjoys a happy ending, um, when he goes back to look for his little friend Dick, who shared the um, lack of care in Mrs. Mann's children's farm and in the workhouse, he returns and finds little Dick is dead, that he's in fact died um, in this uncaring environment. Thank you. So we've heard about poverty in the time of Dickens. What about today? Are there any poor people in the UK today? Well, I suppose it depends how you look at it. If we're talking about absolute poverty, well, yes, there are. There is somebody living in the bus shelter outside my house um, in a small middle-class market town in Gloucestershire. It's been living there for the last year or so. It happens. But I don't want to talk about people like that. What I want to talk about is the people who are poor by the kind of definitions that, that we generally use. The government definition of poverty is of people whose income is below 60% of the mean. And the mean is defined um, quite carefully. It's about household income and is divided into the different types of households. So there's not just one mean, it's the mean for each household. And there are more figures than this, but, but just illustrative figures. For a childless couple, the mean is about £21,800, and so 60% of that is just over £13,000 a year. That's income. A couple with two children under 14, the mean is about £35,500, and the poverty level, £18,300. Lone parent with one child under 14, the mean is £18,500 roughly, and the poverty level, £11,400. And for a single adult with no children, 
The mean is 14,600 and the poverty level 8,800, that's income per year. So how many people in the UK fall into these levels? These figures are 2009-10, um, the most recent that, that are available <coughs> at the moment. And you see that they run from 1980 to 9-10. Over on the right, it's just between 20 and 25%. I think it's around 23% of households in the UK are living in poverty, or people in the UK are living in poverty. The red is people who have an income of less than 40% of the mean. And that red has been rising over the years and is now around 10%. So 10% of people in U the UK have an income of less than 40% of the mean. Sorry, not the mean, I mean the median. Uh, sorry, I do get these wrong. It is the median that I'm talking about, not the mean. So, wherever I've said mean up to now, can you please correct the median? I read greats, you can tell, can't you? <laughs> Um, I think I might skip the next two slides, which, which break this down a little bit further. Um, but I think this one certainly gives an idea that we're not talking about no one. We're talking about a lot of people. 60% of the median is just one definition of poverty. A definition that's used by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation is a low enough income to mean that one is excluded from society. <coughs> and their most recent research on that and a minimum income standard for the UK was published in July. You might have met the, um, seen some of the, the press coverage about it. Um, there was a lot of controversy about the fact that the focus groups who had decided what it was that people needed in order to be able to fully participate in society had concluded this time, which they had not last, that outside London, people with children in urban areas needed a second-hand car. However you look at that, the additional cost of having a second-hand car would be um, about £300 a year or £6 a week. So the figures that follow, although they include the car, don't, doesn't make an awful lot of difference. If you don't have a car, you have to factor in public transport. What the focus groups decided was that public transport outside London is so awful that in order for children to join in with the various things that other children are doing, their parents do need to ferry them around in a car. So, the research shows that a single person needs to spend £193 a week to reach a minimum standard of living. If they're out of work, a single person, benefits will provide £85 a week, which is £108 short of what they need. In work, they would need to earn £16,400 a year 
in order to be left with that £193 after paying basic rent, tax and national insurance. So that's a single person. Couple with two children, they need £455 a week. If neither parent works, they'll get 281, leaving them 174 pounds short of what they need. If one parent works, that parent will need to earn nearly 35,000 pounds a year in order to be left with the 455 after paying <coughs> rent, tax and national insurance, and that does include receiving tax credits and child benefit. If they both work, then they'll need to earn 18,400 each. So is this higher than the poverty line? So MIS minimum income standards as a percentage of median income. And yes, it is. It is above the poverty line, but not an awful long way above the poverty line. After housing costs, before housing costs, we're looking at 70 to 75% for most people of median income. So this isn't particularly generous, this minimum income standard, but it does demonstrate that certainly on benefits, one is way below that and also below the poverty line. The next slide shows the earnings required to reach the minimum income standard. I'm showing this really for the second element of this, the pounds per hour, what you would need to earn in order to reach that minimum income standard. So this year, a single man, single person would need £8.35 £8 an hour, a couple with two children and one earner, £17.84 an hour, Two children, two earners, 9.39, and a lone parent with one child, 12.20. Um, the national minimum wage is currently six, £6.08 pence per hour. Now, <coughs> £6.08 pence does take a single adult and a lone parent with one child above the poverty line, but everybody, that's the 60% line but everybody else would need to have an additional income in order to meet the 60%, let alone the minimum income standard. So, what does this mean in practice? At Church Action on Poverty, we think that the experts on poverty are the poor. So, let me tell you some of the stories that poor people have told me. First of all, a couple who worked pretty well all their lives, self-employed though, declared their income, paid their taxes, and then the husband became disabled. And it was no longer possible for the wife to carry on the business because of the care that her husband needed. So, for the first time in their lives, they went on benefits and described themselves as suddenly becoming non-people, <coughs> as being totally looked down on by everyone, in spite of the fact that up to that point that disaster struck, 
they had paid their way, they had worked, but now they were considered absolutely nothing. Of course, they can't get a bank account, have a bank account because they're on benefits. And the utility companies don't trust them, so their electricity is on a coin-operated meter, which means they pay more per unit than you and I do. They can't get credit or loans from the bank, so if the washing machine breaks down, then they have to borrow at an exorbitant rate of interest. Um, in the area I'm thinking of, the most popular way is the pay-as-you-view television company, which um, puts a meter on your television, and as you pay to watch the television, that money goes to pay off your loan. Um, what it boils down to is that for the very cheapest washing machine, they pay over a thousand pounds by the time they finish their interest. I think of a young man, a young man who, although he lives on what is described as a sink estate, did manage to get a job. And he had a wife, and I'm not sure how many children, at least one. But um, the wife walked out, um, another man, not reasonably amicable. He had a council house, and he wanted to keep it because that meant that, that, that his children could come and stay with him, and, and it, it was appropriate. And on his, on his wages, he could manage that. And then he was made redundant. Obviously, the housing benefit for a single man is not really enough for a house, but his mother was able to help him just a little, and so he still managed to keep the house while he was on benefit. Because of his address, it took him two and a half, three years even to get an interview, but he finally did manage to find a job um, loading lorries at a, Tesco's, um, at a Tesco's distribution depot. Promptly lost his housing benefit, the help his mother could give him wasn't enough, and he had to leave his house. So he would be better off on benefit, but he is a young man who really doesn't want to be there. He wants to work, he wants to pay his way, he cares about it. And so he's moved in with his parents because that, he couldn't afford anywhere that he could have the children to stay, but they can at least come and stay in their grandparents' house. Just two stories, I could tell you lots more, but that is what these statistics that we've just rushed through mean for ordinary people living in our country today. Does it matter to us? It, is it, is it just interesting? Well, this is additional about safety net benefits which just don't take you anywhere. The income inequality, Jane mentioned it for the 18th century, 19th century. In the 21st century, this illustrates income inequality. The deepest colour is the income, the property wealth, the asset wealth owned by the top 10% of, uh, of people in the UK. We then go gradually down until in income wealth you can just see a very dark line at the bottom 
which is the income of the bottom 10%. Um, property wealth, there's no line at all. And asset wealth, hardly any black line. Income inequality in the UK is one of the worst in the developed world. And Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett have done research using the techniques of epidemiology, which demonstrates the correlation between income inequality and a range of social indicators. They are life expectancy, maths and literacy, infant mortality, homicide, imprisonment, teenage births, trust, obesity, mental illness, substance abuse, social mobility. <laughs> so on those indicators, it is clear from epidemiological research and it's, it's been published in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, I, I, I told you I read great, so I get it out of the spirit level. But those of you who can understand these things can go to, to the published research. All these indicators show that there is a very strong correlation between a worse outcome on these social indicators across the whole range of society a whole range, the rich as well as the poor, based on with income inequality. So the Wilkinson and Pickett um, graph, that's the, the, the generalisation one. The UK, as you see, is third on the income inequality and third also on the worse way of the index of health and social problems. The more equal the country, the better things are. So, to sum it up, if you're rich in the UK, you may have more money than if you're rich in Norway, but you'll die younger, you'll be iller, and you will have far less trust of your society of course it's worse for the poor in Norway than it is for the rich in the UK. But poverty in the UK matters to and affects all of us. I rather struggled with Dickens when I was younger. I've started again since I was invited to speak at this seminar. And yes, actually, he really is worth reading. I'm going to persist. Um, but I do wonder what he would have made of this kind of information about the impact of poverty on the rich as well as on the poor. Thank you. And now for the token man. Um, uh, punching a member of the government, for those of you who are interested, um, Danny Alexander, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, uh, is of course uh, a fellow alum of St Anne's. Uh, my sport is boxing. Uh, you can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> Uh, now, like any uh, graduate of St Anne's, of course, um, I do believe very firmly uh, that we should start out by defining the terms and specifying the intellectual problem at hand. We have a problem with the term the time of Dickens, because, of course, Dickens was a fraud. Dickens was writing about stagecoaches in the era of railways. It's a bit like using P.G. Woodhouse to describe modern society and income distribution. And this, I think, is, is really the first point that I want to raise. Dickens was writing in a time of enormous social change and economic change. He was writing before the repeal 
of the Corn Laws, and he died on the eve of the Great Agricultural Depression of the 1870s. During his time, we had the Mining Acts, the Factory Acts, as we've heard, the New Poor Law. So what I want to do is try and identify what, for me, I think are four key points of similarity between the era of Dickens and where we are today, and try and identify four key points of difference. The first point of similarity, I think, is that Dickens was in the midst of an era where communication and mobility were changing significantly for the economy as a whole. This was a time of uh, improvements in domestic transport, but also in terms of international transport. The introduction of the telegraph meant that communication was that much more rapid. And of course, here in the 21st century, we are in, uh, again, an environment where information, communication, and indeed transport, is changing significantly in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. The issue here, economically, of course, is that if you are left behind in these changes, if you cannot take advantage of these changes, it puts you at considerable economic disadvantage uh, as a source of labour. The second uh, area, I think, of similarity is that there was a degree of state intervention in terms of poverty, and there was certainly a wider sense of concern about poverty. The laissez-faire economy of the 19th century wasn't actually that laissez-faire. We have, of course, the poor laws, as we've already heard, but there was also private involvement in uh, uh, raising the standards of living, something that Dickens was personally involved in uh, in uh, uh, the uh, reform of women in London who had uh, fallen into prostitution or destitution. Today, of course, we also have state involvement in uh, poverty. Uh, it may not be at the level we would wish to see, but there is an acceptance that some people are poor through no fault of their own, and that must be remedied. In Dickens' time, that acceptance was something relatively new, I think. It was not something that was there under the Tudor poor laws, but it's something that was gradually emerging, that there should be assistance for those less well off. The third similarity, and I think an important similarity between uh, poverty and income distribution in Dickens and today, was credit. Credit in Dickens' works, credit today, is extremely important. Credit's a wonderful institution. It allows you to spend money you don't have on things you don't need. In the time of Dickens, credit was very, very important for the middle classes uh, in particular. Not just Micawber, that's the, the obvious place to go, but think about Pip in Great Expectations. Who, oh, as, uh, as a young man, basically builds this gentrified lifestyle entirely on credit, which of course he has difficulty meeting uh, when the expectations turn out uh, to be less than he had thought. Credit in the UK in the last 15 or 20 years has also been a very important part of many people's lives. What credit does with income inequality is extremely important. Because credit allows us to have consumption equality alongside income inequality. If you aspire to something and you don't have the money, well, that's not a problem. Because credit will facilitate the equality. 
And that brings me to the final similarity, I think, between society and economy today and in the times of Dickens, which is the importance of keeping up appearances. Think of the veneerings in um, uh, the uh, David, uh, sorry, uh, David Copperfield story. You have this middle-class family that is, or middle-class pair, that are desperately keeping up appearances. It's entirely a facade. It's all fur coat and no knickers. And that, of course, is very much a society today. Today, the veneerings would be out there after the iPhone 5. Because you must have the latest. You must keep up with your peers. So for me, I think the, the enormous change in the mobility of, of Dickens, the fact that there was an understanding that poverty wasn't actually necessarily the fault of the poor, the role of credit in society and the keeping up appearances, those are the key similarities between the time of Dickens and today. Where are there differences? The first difference, I think, is a very, very powerful difference. Dickens was writing at a time of considerable increase in income inequality. In the last 20 years, income inequality has collapsed in one of the most dramatic contractions that we have ever seen. Not in the United Kingdom, as, as we've just seen. Income inequality in the United Kingdom hasn't contracted. But globally, we have far fewer people living in poverty uh, today than we have ever seen. The global income inequality has contracted. But of course, this does matter when we come to consider uh, the UK. The income inequality globally contracting puts those people who have, for want of a better expression, third world skills in the developed world at a considerable disadvantage. Because what has helped the enormous improvement in living standards in a country like China is actually something which is going to disadvantage those who are illiterate or enumerate in the OECD countries. What you end up with when we throw in the mobility of labour, of course, is uh, the risk that low-skilled jobs in the developed world move to emerging markets. From a global perspective, one can welcome this development. From a national perspective, of course, it is causing increased problems in income distribution. The second difference, I think, is uh, perhaps a more positive uh, difference, the consequences of poverty in the United Kingdom today compared to the consequences of Dickens' time. I am not belittling the consequences of poverty today, but the risk of famine today in the United Kingdom, I think, is very, very low indeed. In Dickens' time, we had two major famines, one in Lancashire, one in Ireland. In the modern world, I think even in, at a global level, we can say now that famine is not an inevitability, it is a choice arising from human action, from war or from political madmen, as in the case of North Korea, but not actually something that emerges from the economy. If you think about the, the story of Joe the Crossing Sweeper uh, in Bleak House, you know, this child who doesn't know his second name, doesn't know his parents, doesn't have anywhere to live, and basically makes a living by uh, begging in, a, in a, a disguised form before dying as a very young child. That is not a story that we are going to be seeing repeated on a large scale in modern OECD countries. So the consequences of poverty have also shifted.
The third difference, I think, arises from credit. And here we have um, a, a different format to credit today. In Dickens' work, credit is very, very personal. Uh, General George, uh, again in Bleak House, is signing a bill personally for credit. He's borrowing from Smallweed, who knows him personally. Now, Smallweed maintains this facade that it's my friend in the city that's lending the money, because then you can demonise the, the person working in the financial markets. Now, that hasn't changed. Um, but it's very, very much personal. Of course, Charles Dickens' father is sent to prison for debt because he owed the baker £40, not because he owed the bank or the credit card company £40. Today, credit has become a lot more democratic. People far lower down the income scale have access to credit than was the case even 30 or 40 years ago. But as credit has become more ubiquitous and more democratic, it has also become a lot less personal. And as a result, it's become a lot more mechanical. And if you fall foul of the credit system today, it's a lot more difficult to argue extenuating circumstances and extension of time because there are set formula uh, and set approaches that are being used in what is a very mechanical system. The final difference uh, that I think is worth mentioning, and this for me I think is, is one of the things that is very much underestimated in terms of income inequality today. A lot of the problems that we see in developed economies today arise not so much from income inequality, but inflation inequality. As we heard from, from Alison, if you're putting money into a meter, it's more expensive than if you're paying on direct debit. But actually, it goes beyond that. The basket of goods that someone on a low income will buy is very, very different from the basket of goods that somebody on a high income will buy. Now, in Dickens' time, the sorts of things that lower income people were buying were generally falling in price. Food was becoming more readily available and was cheaper. Energy was relatively plentiful and tended to come down in price. If we look at the history of the last 20 years, as a consequence of globalisation, as a consequence of rising global living standards, what we actually find is that income inequality has been accompanied by rising inflation inequality, which has been really quite significant. If you are low income in a developed world, nearly all of your money will go on food, energy and housing. What has risen most in price over the course of the last 20 years? Food, energy and housing. The consumer electronics, the luxury goods, the services that the higher income groups buy have tended to come down in price. This is very, very different from where we were in the 19th century. And I think this will continue to be a challenge as we look ahead. Inflation in any country, when we look at the average inflation number, what we are looking at is a plutocratic, not a democratic, statistic. Inflation is not done on the basis of one person, one vote. It's done on the basis of one pound, one vote. The inflation number in the United Kingdom reflects the inflation rate of somebody around about the 75th percentile of income distribution. So 75th is top 25% of, of wealth in this country. If you look at the lower income groups, they typically have an inflation rate that is rising by about 1, 1.5% a year more 
than the higher income groups over a period of time. That, I think, is the challenge that we face. If we look at the developed world today, and we look at the pressures in terms of cost of living, and we think about how the global economy is likely to develop as we reduce poverty elsewhere in the world, but put pressure on things like commodity prices, the conclusion that we come to is that it's an awful lot cheaper to be young and rich if you can possibly manage it. Thank you. <laughs>